Welcome back, everyone, to a brand new episode of Radiant Others. My name is Dan Blacksburg, and if you're joining us for the first time, that's so awesome. Most likely, you've listened to a couple of these episodes before, so I'm so glad to be back and be able to bring new episodes to you. It's been a little while. Some of that while was uh, chosen on my part, and some of it was due to some stuff that came up in my life, but I'm back. And I'm really excited to bring today's episode to you, featuring my conversation with trumpeter, composer, arranger, musical organizer, and big thinker, David Bookbinder. David Bookbinder is uh, one of the most premier klezmer musicians based in Canada. He's been based in Toronto for a long time, and he started the Flying Bulgar Klezmer Band, which was a really important band in Canada. It's actually a band that whose music I'm just getting to learn now, and I think there's a lot of really great stuff there, from the arrangements of songs to the way that he mixes and his bandmates mix all the different influences together in the band and that's just the tip of the iceberg with David Um, I met him recently and this conversation happened the day after we performed at the first night of his residency at the Stone back in April the Stone is a venue for experimental music run by John Zorn at uh, the New School in Manhattan so It was really great to get to meet David musically there and then to get to talk to him and learn a lot more about his life, his career, and all the different kinds of things he's involved with now and has been involved with in the past. One of the things that David says is that he's never shied away from hard work, and you can really see that in the kind of incredible list of accomplishments that he's done throughout his career and that he's still doing today. So this is exciting. I think it's a good one. And I think you'll enjoy it. Before we get started, uh, again, as always, rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. And uh, I'll be thinking more about how we can grow the audience of this podcast and help these things reach new people. And I'll be asking for all your help with that soon. So without much further ado, here's my conversation with Dave Bookbinder. can get here we go this is crazy you know we're uh here in brooklyn neither of us live here and we're uh recording this on your yeah this is great thanks for being up for it and thanks for providing the uh equipment this is really helpful high-end recording gear seriously man we're doing good yeah we're doing good yeah all right so you've been playing i mean if someone said how long you've been playing klezmer for what's your answer for that uh like 30 years, more or less. Yeah, yeah. 30 years. Uh, maybe 31 or two. Um, Does that, but like, you know, klezmer is such a funny thing. Like, what is that, you know, would you Jewish separate- music, Eastern European Jewish music. Like, but it is definitely, like, it is, I'm definitely a product of the klezmer revival. Nobody talks about that anymore. But it's, yeah. a, you know, of that moment mm-hmm. when the music started coming back. And it was, it's actually a direct, it's very easy to see. It's not like, Oh, it was swirling around, and I'd heard it. I never heard it. I didn't grow up with it. I mean, I grew up fairly Jewish in, in St. Louis, 
um, until I was 10 when we moved to Toronto. Um, but eh, there was a, some sound of Jewish music from shul or cantorial stuff or whatever. But it didn't play a big role. Um, so when I heard it, it was new and familiar, right? But it was very directly came out of hearing a Klezmer Conservatory band record. Yeah, which one? Do you remember which first one? one? The first one, Yiddish Renaissance. Yeah. It's a crazy great record. Yeah. And it's really, it doesn't sound like anything else in, I mean, maybe it sounds like other KCB records, but it doesn't really sound like any of the Klezmer that preceded it, even. No, it's its own thing, partly because even the way it's recorded and all that stuff, right? If right. you go back to, like, what, and and really different from the other Klezmer that was appearing around the same time, which I sort of figured out after. Like, it, to me, it came... What do you call it? It was a little bit of a tabula rasa. Like, it just came out of the sky. Yeah. Because uh, my mother got the record for some reason. Oh, yeah. I mean, she wasn't big into Yiddish music or Yiddish anything, but she just got it. And I was like, oh, what's that? And I checked it out and started taking it around and playing it for musician friends. And actually, because we've been talking about Ornette and Jamal Adin, and I was actually playing in a kind of... Uh, primetime influence band called mm. Thin Men. Nice. Toronto, led by a trombone player, a Toronto trombone, trombone player named Tom Walsh. And I remember taking it to uh, a rehearsal and playing it for them. Because right? I was just like fascinated by this music, which sort of was completely familiar and completely foreign at the same time. That's wild. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that you mentioned, uh, you know, having some Jewish sound in your right. life, shul, yeah. but it wasn't, the defining focus of, or even a main focus of your musicality or whatever. No. And that's that's something that seems to have come a little bit later from the beginning of the revival, but then sort of came quickly. But, I mean, that was my experience, this kind of homecoming feeling right. when you get back into well, it. Well, and it's interesting. Like, um, first of all, I didn't, I mean, I started playing when I was a kid and I was really into it. And, you know, I think if we'd stayed in St. Louis, I would have taken this direct trajectory. Right. But then moving kind of screwed everything up. Like you were how old? nine ten like yeah. on the border it it kind of uh in a way i'm glad we did in the end because i think it's a lot better place to live toronto than st louis but um apologies to anyone from st louis who's listening but uh <laughs> it's a fact let's hope they're um, listening uh yes exactly you should all be listening um but uh it just kind of interrupted all the stuff that i was into i was into sports i was you know and none of, it just all kind of went away for various reasons i don't need to get into and it took me a long time to get back to it so um but, uh, so I immediately, I was into jazz, I was into learning about jazz, into open form improvisation, and to, you know, and then not, at a certain point I got into Afro-Cuban music, just by happenstance. Uh, but I was living in Germany for a while, and hitchhiking around, and I ended up in Yugoslavia, I think it was still Yugoslavia then, before it broke apart, and I was playing music on the street to try and make some money to keep my trip going. And I did find, partly because people responded to it, but I found myself drifting towards these, you know, kind of minor modes and these Jew and even probably Fragish without knowing what I was playing, because mm. that was in there, right? And then the first time I wrote music, um, very, very tiny steps of writing music for like a kind of a jazz thing at a club somewhere, a tiny club, I also drew on some... Passover melodies or something. So it's clear that it was there and that I, and that that's the only reason that the Klezmer stuff resonated with me, I think, was because I already had some of that sound or some ancestral thing in there that uh, was ready to receive it. That's awesome. So you 
moved to St. Louis, moved from St. Louis to Toronto when you're like 10 or 12 or something yeah, like that. Yeah. And then you start playing, but you, you mentioned to me yesterday that you started playing music like after high school. Well, I, I played in St. Louis really seriously, then didn't play, then went to try and get back into it when I was 13 and had the world's worst trumpet teacher who I believe is a special place at hell reserved yeah. for those people, although we should be forgiving. But, um, you know, <laughs> he, he basically kept me away from it for another seven years. But music drew me. So then by the time I was 15, I was really getting into the blues. I can't remember what got me into it, but folk blues. And I was listening to it obsessively. And then I was at this kind of progressive Jewish summer camp where, like, the big ideal was, can you play music? Right. You know, more than can you play sports? And uh, so that sort of drew me in. wanted to get some uh, attention from the girls, playing guitar. Ah. And, you know, and so I picked up a guitar and started playing the blues and studying that and learning it and harmonica. Um uh, and trumpet was always in the back of my head. Like yeah. I never, I it never went away. I just mm. didn't somehow feel it was for me. Like that teacher somehow gave me that feeling, uh, schmuck. And uh, <laughs> and uh, whatever. I'm, you know, yeah, listen. We've most of us have, have been, been there, there right? Yeah. So, but it's fine. You know, it, he didn't keep me away from it forever, and right. I came back That's to right. it uh, around twenty, the age of twenty. I was like, okay, this thing's not going to leave me alone. I know I love music. I don't really care about career, so let's just explore it. How did you end up in, you know, in like out jazz? Because I was into jazz. So the blues, still as a teenager, not playing, but listening a lot, playing guitar, playing blues guitar, led to uh, Monk. Monk, it's a friend of mine, got really into bebop, picked up the saxophone, got really into bebop, was playing me like Bird and Dizzy Records, and I didn't understand, I, I didn't grasp them. I was like, that's really cool as a kind of, you know, like a, thing to see that somebody can play like that yeah but i didn't mean anything to me i didn't have the context but what did grab me immediately because of the connection to the blues because of the humor because of the total idiosyncrasy of it mm -hmm. was monk yeah monk and then following monk quickly mingus and then rasan those three kind of made me go oh jazz like i really feel something here and really love it um so then that was an impetus, further impetus to go, and then hearing trumpet players, of course, right. including Dizzy, but um, uh, made me want to pick it up even more. I mentioned before, I think about getting into salsa or African, that was because I was living in Germany. Okay. And I was playing street music, like I said. Mm -hmm. And the first time I ever did it in Heidelberg, this guy comes up to me and says, oh, that sounds good. Would you like to play salsa? In a salsa band. I'm like, sure, what's salsa? I'd never heard of it. And uh, he explained it to me. I'm like, oh, that sounds cool. That's, you know, so I did and tried to learn the music. And this band worked a lot. And it was cool because it was, Heidelberg was where all the um, American army bases were. And this was still, when they were still really a lot of American soldiers there. And a lot of them were Puerto Rican. Right. So the band wasn't Germans. The band were Puerto Ricans. The singer was Colombian. The bass player was Argentinian. But mostly the percussionists were Puerto Rican. The... Uh, the pianist was American. Anyway, so it was this international band, but mostly with Latinos, and uh, uh, it was a huge education. Um, yeah, I'm sure. And it, and it also, yeah, so that was happening. Oh, no, I'm getting my chronology all screwed up. It was before I went to Germany. I was looking for a teacher, right? Remember I said I started when I'm 20, so I figured, okay, I have to learn how to play the instrument again mm -hmm. at the same time as I need to figure out what it means to play jazz. So I had got some really straight-ahead trumpet technique teacher, did that for a year, just trying to, you know, doing odd jobs and stuff and trying to start to get 
back to the instrument. Um, and I was looking for a new teacher because I felt like I needed somebody who could help me with the creative side of things. And I saw a poster, Fred Stone School of Music, with a really cool drawing of a trumpet player on it. So I go and check it out. Turns out Freddie Stone is one of the greatest improvisers or jazz players uh, ever uh, you know, developed in Canada. Uh, happened to be a Jewish guy, Stein, right? Mm -hmm. Freddie yeah, Stone. Yeah. Um, his father, Archie, ran the... Uh, um, the orchestra in the local in a Yiddish theater that was also kind of vaudeville hmm. and Freddie played in the pit band he was a pro when he was 14 Wow! and also there were enough good players in the band that when touring American acts would be in town they'd come and sit in and by the time he's in his early 20s he's the first call everything mm -hmm. jazz, you know, jingles um, even you know out classical stuff you can play anything this guy and he was at the top of the game. And he was in a CBC recording studio doing something. And Duke Ellington was there recording Such Sweet Thunder, his uh, incredible suite um, uh, based on Shakespearean plays. Uh, and Duke heard Freddie soloing in the next studio. He said, who is that guy? Bring him to me. Oh, wow. So he brought Freddie to him and he offered him a gig. Amazing. Uh, so Freddie tours with Duke. And not only that, he also... Um, uh, do record some of Freddie's tunes, which is unheard of. I mean, there's one Tizol. Yeah, right. And maybe, and obviously Billy Strayhorn, but not in... That's a different kind of a different relationship, yeah. not counting that. There are very few people whose tunes Duke's ever played, and he played some of Freddie's. Uh, and Freddie lasts a couple of years in that band and comes off the road in really bad shape because of drug use. <sighs> um, uh, and he's this tiny little guy, and he's trying to keep up with... Um, guys in the band and it didn't go well anyway so and after all of that his whole thing was well i've really done the jazz thing and i've played with duke ellington so and i i can do it i maybe i'll still do it but what else is there or what how can the music move forward so he was one of the people in his own way who was trying to reframe or re-understand you know with jazz that had gotten not that duke was so much about this but that had gotten more and more involved with more and more changes more and more mm -hmm. uh the song form how do you come at it a different way and he had his own way of doing it so this is the guy i find amazing randomly yeah and you know he totally upends my world and gets me into all this thing but i will just say so that got me into the out thing yeah, yeah. but his out thing was different because it was he called it like spontaneous composition. Sure. That he was very much about rigor, form, all the same things you would want in inside music, whether classical or, you know, uh, bebop or anything like that, or Ellington music. But to do it in a more spontaneous way, he had his own kind of conduction thing, like Butch Morris, that was different, his own. So, yeah, and he couldn't find players uh, of his generation who could do this. Right. They couldn't wrap their heads around it. Um, and so he started teaching people because he wanted to make his own thing. Oh, that's cool. So it's a long story, but it um, it really frames everything that came after because one of the things that he did that I nobody was doing this that I knew of, it certainly wasn't in the mainstream of jazz then, was to look at world cultures. Yeah. I mean, equally, he was like, oh, let's take the theme from Petrushka or some, uh, some here's the thing from Shostakovich or, you know, let's take this and improvise on it. Let's mm -hmm. build on it. But at the same time, he'd go to the library and get... Here's a transcription of Ugandan folk song or, you know, a Portuguese love song. Now, we had no context for it. We didn't know the cultures it was from right. properly. 
but it was still melodic material you could work with. And I had not seen anyone else go, world culture is an incredible resource. Right. And that really was kind of, that really set me up in a way to be ready for Klezmer, as well as going to the Banff Jazz Workshop in 86, which was right before I started playing Klezmer and studying with Abraham Edzinia, who's yeah. a master drummer from Ghana. Right. Um, and from Freddie, even though he had this kind of world culture openness, from him, me and all the guys, we were in women, we, we were learning with him. We were all about, it's all got to be new. Everything has to be, you know, anything that has done been done before is wrong or, you know, like a waste of time. So it was all, then Abraham was like, wait a minute, what about the ancestors? Yeah. We got to talk about the ancestors. You only are who you are. You must have a living relationship. It totally blew my mind because, you know, when you see somebody who's embodying that and this level of skill and commitment and ability to communicate with an audience, I'm like, I got to pay attention to this. So those two things, Freddie Stone and Abraham Mazzinia, set me up to be ready to receive Klezmer. Mm -hmm. And so this was in the late 80s, you're back in Toronto, and... Your mom shows up with this record. Yeah. So she's in 87. She showed in early 87, I think. I go to the jazz workshop in 86 the first time, and I went twice. Great. Also in 87. Um, oh, no, or maybe I want to, I can't remember. Anyway, uh, shows up with a record. I'm listening to it, taking it around with my friends. A few of them say to me, hey, this is amazing. You should start a band doing this. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, I just laughed because I'm like, I'm, I just started playing. Like, what? I don't know how to run a band. I, you yeah, know, yeah. I, I got to get my shit together. But it just planted a little seed. And then I'm playing summers or late spring and I'm playing the record kind of obsessively and my window's open. I live on the first floor, kind of near Chinatown in Toronto, actually near Kensington Market, the old Jewish mm-hmm. market. And uh, this friend of my uh, brother and more my sister-in-law who lives on the same street walks by and hears it and he sticks his head in my first floor window and goes what is that i'm like it's pleasure he's like i know he says, i'm getting married i want you to put a band together and i'm like <laughs> uh, again i try and blow him off right and he goes away and he comes back and says no man I, you got to do this you have to do this wow like, there are no pleasure bands here you're a trumpet player you're a musician i hear you're playing this shit do it yeah. i'm like okay so it happens. We put together, we, you know, basically steal note for note the uh, arrangements on uh, Yiddish Renaissance, put together a smaller band than that. It was probably a sextet. And uh, and we do the wedding. Yeah. And people lose their minds. I mean, Amazing. we don't know what we're doing. We're not playing the music, right? But they were playing the melodies, right? Right. And they hear it. And in a cool sort of thing, we're doing it in this area that is the Jewish roots of Toronto, where most Jews don't live anymore, especially at that time, in a shul that since had become a community center. Wow. But that people, these guys had rented out just to do their party in. So all that somehow made it cool. And just the degree of response was so intense that it felt like a moment, something was happening. Yeah. So I said to the other guys, hey, you want to do this? Like, let's let's check it out. And then there was a jazz series took us about four or five months to get actually get some shit together. There was a jazz series in this local club that also was in a different sort of range of an old Jewish area that wasn't Jewish anymore. Uh, and that guy booked us. Mm-hmm. And we did a thing. And, like, we had 250 people the first gig, and they kind of were losing their minds. So, boom. I'm like, okay, let's do this. And, and that's an incredible story. And yet it's not a completely unique story. No. That's what's so wild about it is that there was just... This unbelievable 
spark. Like the right. Tinder clearly was already right there. Yeah. And what that Tinder is is something that I'm very interested in. You know, well, let's and, talk about that. Yeah, yeah. But like, but then the but just to say that like, once the spark hit, it yeah. didn't take a lot of sparks. No, just a little bit, and boom. Well, what came to me after I don't know a few years of being involved in the music and really kind of going deep, trying to go deeply into what was what is all this and what does it mean, and just you know to feel it, feel it more than to kind of try and analyze it. And my feeling was. And it's not only, this is not the only music, or I think this is true across many cultures, was that the music wasn't done. That the music is kind of a being, right? It's an ex- mm. It is a kind of a collective expression of something. And, uh, and it, neither was it done just being present in the world to speak its language, to speak in its tongue. Uh, it, it also had more places to go. And... It wasn't going to be put down, you know. It wasn't ready to be really. It wasn't ready to be taken out by the Holocaust, basically, which, <laughs> which is what happened, right? Yeah, yeah. And obviously, that's true for Jewish and Yiddish culture, uh, not just the music. But to me, there's something. Music is so elemental, and is a kind of voice of the ancestors, and it's part of the lineage, right? So that's my sense. Is that, and of course, it was part of a much bigger cultural moment that. We go back to Henry Sapoznik talks about this, and I think he's right that uh, the um, kind of roots Africa, black power, and then the the cultural part of black power was this is a beautiful thing that was taken away from us, and it's our birthright, and right. we need to get down with it, right? And that led to you know Mexican Americans becoming Chicanos, and uh, it's all part of the same thing. Yeah, and I'm sure Henry and the other guys at the beginning of this revival um spoke about it it was a very direct influence so it was also a you know because america and north america was all about shedding who you were to become american whatever that means and canadian it was a very similar process but in that we completely stripped off all this beautiful stuff right i mean i think it's a matter of either you became as american or quote unquote whatever mainstream version of that is you were allowed to, and that yeah. certainly changed over time for a lot of people, especially Jews and Ashkenazi Jews yeah. in particular. And then whether it was taken away, but yeah, I think you're right. There was definitely a cultural moment around the time when this got started where it was really about reclaiming or, or you know, like what is our music or what is our culture? And yeah, I mean, music has always been a spearhead of culture people just get really into it but it's also kind of nourishment right it's like there's something fundamental that it it nourishes and you know one thing I, if i've learned anything is that there's so much value and depth and specificity mm-hmm. right it's yes all music is equal all expression is coming from the fundamental and the fundamental tone is human and so what does it mean to be in a body on this planet, you know? But then we have, that's a beautiful thing, right? About the uh, biology is like this, right? It's a, it, there's a, a profligacy. It's like there's way more than is necessary. There's so <laughs> many kinds of flowers and so many different ways for that bugs work and so many, right? So it's the same thing with language and with culture and with um, music, that that there's this specificity that's encoded in Yiddish music and in all kinds of music. So 
So, and I think there's something that feeds your soul to be connected to your ancestral lineage uh, in a way that is living. And that's what I really appreciate about what happened with the so-called Klezmer revival, that it, in the most part, it succeeded. I mean, not fully, of course, but it succeeded by being in being alive and yeah. not being a museum kind of deal. Yeah, right? it really didn't do that very much at all. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of people, who, uh, players who may get stuck there in kind of trying to recreate something, but by and large, and especially in a cultural center like New York or even Toronto, it um, there was so much movement, right? That's still going on. Yeah, totally. And I think that even from my perspective, even the recreating of the things that you might look at and say, like, that's a museum or something museum-like still has a lot of creative decision-making in how people had to extrapolate from like the limited source materials that we have. And so for me, the whole revival or all the stuff that's happened with maybe like the few exceptions where people actually just get to play the music that was played 50 years ago, 70 right. years ago, you know, with people like, uh, even then it's, it's different the way we play the, the, the songs are, have changed and it's, it, there's something really special about that. No, and to not like to be, uh, completely clear i when i said the thing of museum it doesn't mean about playing traditionally because if you or so-called traditionally yeah. for me if you play traditionally in a way that is living it's not museum sure so it's not only about developing the music or bringing in other influences it's just about it being alive and it's the same thing with i don't know baroque music you know right, baroque totally. european music there are those who play it in this way that seems codified and not related to them and there are those who play it like it's vibrant and alive right now stuff you can't really it's very hard to be just a musician who like just waits for the call and plays the gig no i mean there are some i think if you live in new york you can kind of play klezmer that way yeah if you're like a rhythm section player or something you know there's so few people who get into this music especially if they're not centered in a place where a lot of it's happening where you don't try to do something with it because you just had to right and it's so it sounded like that you were in that position in Toronto. And it's funny because it, I didn't, it was not something I planned on. Sure. It was a total, um, not in a bad way, but it was a total detour from where I thought I was heading. But I, one thing about me, I've always been able to listen when a voice calls and says, what about this? Mm. Or check this out. Or, hmm, 
that's an interesting idea. You know, why don't you do this? And I can never say, if it's a good idea, I can't generally say, I can't tell you why not. So I do it. And then I just to see what happens. Um, uh, and we were talking about this before. I don't know if I said it with this machine running, but, um, but I was so uninterested in career. Like I was not planning anything mm. except I wanted to play music and discover where it could take me. So, you know, Klezmer came along and of course it's a, you, you can never ignore the fact that there's the economic side of it. If you're getting gigs doing something, it's a massive incentive to continue and to get better and to learn more about it and to, you know, so, but it's still, I never thought of a really like career and I just took it as a longer term exploration uh, at the same time. Cause remember, I'm still a relatively new musician at that time, trying to learn my instrument trying to learn important things like how to arrange something, how do you compose, how do you, you know, uh, and just looking for the opportunities to do that. And the good thing is that the Flying Bulgar Klezmer Band, which is the band that uh, I founded, um, uh, gave me the opportunity to do all that stuff. It sounds to me like that when you mentioned the Salsa Band, it was mm. so incredible that you were invited into a genre of music that you didn't know anything about, and then you got to learn about it on the job, yeah. basically. Like, that's not something that happens relatively often to people my age. Actually, I was just talking to Richie Barche, who well, we're playing he, with tomorrow, and he, he it happened a, with him. It happened with him, but he is a, he's a rare exception, because yeah. it also happened with him very young. Right. Like, really young. Yeah. But yeah, so that's just, that was interesting on its own, but then if you take, you know, a lot of things, and you found uh, Fred Stone, right? Yeah. And, and you found all these edu places where you could learn about, be taught about a bunch of stuff. And then this Klezmer thing comes along, and you have to kind of develop it on your own. Is that what it felt like, or were you, did you decide no, to see early, teachers? No, because early, early on I went to, I mean, the band got formed. So 87 is the first gig at wedding, summer 87, February of 88. It was the first public thing at that club called Clinton's, and we just had our 30th anniversary gig. Even though the band doesn't really exist or play anymore, huh. I, I brought back various people who had been in the band over those, I'd say, 25 years. Um, and we had a great 30th anniversary gig. So, yeah, that's the first public thing. And then it, there's such an amazing response, we just started to build it. And within two years, we have our first recording and video. Mm -hmm. uh, and in between that, so 88... The following, yeah, so the band starts uh, in February. The following December, the whole band goes to uh, Kles Camp. Oh, found, fantastic. How did you find out about Kles Camp? I can't remember. Um, really, I don't know. Okay. I, I can't remember, you know. And I wasn't online then. Did the internet even exist? I can't remember. Yeah. But um, uh, but uh, I heard about it. I mean, you know, I got serious about it quickly, so I was paying attention. And, you know, maybe I read something about it in a magazine mm -hmm. or something. So we all went. And it was vastly useful. And I got, you know, uh, repertoire tapes from uh, from Hank Isnetsky and um, that first year and met Frank London and met a bunch of other people, Michael Alpert, you know, the usual suspects, uh, and started those relationships, right? Mm -hmm. And I think I myself and maybe one other person went back the next year. And then that was it, except one other time I went back. But th those two times and then the relationships with relationships that that made and the material I got to work on was huge and enough for me to work with for a long time and uh and then also you know and I did set up probably a few private lessons I, I mean, there weren't lessons I went and hung out for a weekend with Alan Byrne mm -hmm. in Boston 
few times with Michael here at Michael Alpert. So yeah, all of that was really uh, the way that I started to learn. And there was, it took a little while until the Flying Bulgar, uh, not that long, but until we solidified with the first band, first group of people. And they all had their own learning trajectory. But the scene in Toronto was really small. Like we were it to begin with. Yeah. But we had a lot of success. And one of the things that was interesting, that I think is sort of true here, but I think it was even more true in Toronto in our context, because we were the only ones, except for a band in Winnipeg, Finjan. Right. But they kind of were approaching it differently. They were very in the Jewish community and a bit in kind of the folky community. But somehow we had a kind of edge. And for whatever reason, probably how we played the music, like early on, I think we played it like a kind of crazy thrash punk klezmer or something, mm-hmm. just in terms of energy. Like we played, you know, loud and fast and intensely. And and we brought in that other stuff early on, probably because we didn't know how to play klezmer really strongly in a traditional sense, but also because we just played it like who we were. And that immediately attracted this amazing mix of... Jews who were coming, middle-aged Jews too, who were coming from the more, you know, prosperous neighborhoods to the north and coming to down to where either they had grown up or their parents had grown up to these clubs, Mm -hmm. some, you know, dingy clubs. And we had a mix of them and punks and jazz fans. And it was really interesting. And we would get people dancing like crazy and, you know, not quite body uh, uh, body surfing, but um, <laughs> close to that, right? Uh, yeah, sure. Close to that kind of vibe. And it drew some attention also from, like, the Canadian version of of uh, MTV, Much Music. That's amazing. Yeah, and we, I still think we're the only, from that period of, like, when music videos were really coming on, we're the only Klezmer band who had a music video uh, that, I would that ended up almost in a way in rotation. Now, it never would have because we weren't attached to a major label and it wasn't pop or rock. But at that time, the VJs had a certain amount of leeway and there was a certain amount per day or per hour or something that they could just, they could book anything they wanted. They could show anything they wanted and some of them got into this. They'd come to our shows, something like that, and they liked the energy and the kind of street vibe. Uh, And so they played our video. And that led to a kind of um, street cred sort of thing that was way beyond the Jewish community. Yeah, I uh, can't think of almost anybody who's achieved that since. Not like that, I think. But no. I mean, it was in Canada. But it was also a totally different time. Yeah, it was a different time. And it was people, no one knew what this was. It right. was this new old sound. Mm-hmm. And people had some idea. They thought, oh, I know Fiddler on the Roof or whatever. You know, there was some cultural point of connection. It wasn't yeah. completely... Uh, it wasn't like, let's say, I don't know, introducing music from Tibet or something like that, especially at that time, where there now there are a lot of Tibetans in Toronto. But um, yeah. so actually it was sort of very heady and very quick. And by 93, we were now touring Europe and the States and Canada really regularly. And we were able, I think like a lot of other bands, Klezmer bands of the, you know, I, we were most often compared to the Klezmatics, I think, where there's more, let's say, than Brave Old World or... sure. KCB or something like that. Yeah, I think, as far as I can tell, you guys are closer Yeah. than... Yeah, we we were sort of more all over the place than them. I think the Cosmetics established a sound and a vibe that was really great mm-hmm. and worked with that for uh, kind of in a consistent way. One of the things about the Flying Bulgars was that every record was different, uh-huh. which was partly my searching and trying to do everything and trying to... I was saying to you before, I somehow, as a leader 
pushed the band or it pulled and pushed the band into wherever my head was at at the time as an exploration, trying to learn more things and also trying to figure out, you know, always being dissatisfied, right? Mm. And which was great in many ways, but I think it also made it harder to develop and maintain our audience. Ashkenaz had that Yashkin Festival, which I was starting to talk about how it came about, but just to say it was fascinating to me what a huge impact it had on so many people. Mm. Uh, not like, of course, people with enjoying, enjoyment and pleasure and deep connection of experiencing the art and the music and, you know, all this stuff, but also what it meant to them on a more fundamental level. Yeah. Um, which it, to me was surprising, but I guess I had been at, by that point in deeply involved for seven years with this whole notion of interacting with this culture of my, you know, the world of my origin or partially because I'm also American. Uh, uh, and, you know, kind of really it was very vibrant and alive. But for a lot of people, the experience of going to something that large that was very current Again, mm -hmm. not a museum piece and very forward moving and forward looking and very celebratory was a big revelation and unambivalent. Can you imagine a Jewish thing that was unambivalent, uh, unambivalent, <laughs> positive. And yeah. And just positive and a celebratory thing. Yeah. Even if there's all kinds of shades to it and all kinds of different things. Right. And for those of us who do this all the time, yeah. you're kind of in that space more often. Right. Plus you would go where the music took you and not everybody who lived in Toronto or could come to Ashkenaz was going to go either go to Kles Camp and certainly wasn't going to go tour around playing right. this music and right. experiencing that. Yeah. So, yeah, you brought no, something and, to people. And because we did things that were participatory, and that's always been a thing of mine, but certainly it got its first... No, I was actually doing that in the Bulgars. Like I always wanted to connect the musicians and the audience. So we were always doing wild stuff like... Uh, just going out into the audience, getting people like in with us, moving, you know, mm -hmm. moving the music through, being uh, bringing people on stage. Uh, there was a famous thing that got actually a lot of press. I'm sure if they, we'd had the internet then, it would have been all over the internet, which was uh, we were up in Yellowknife, 
with an audience that was in the Northwest Territories at a festival. Oh, wow. With an audience that was 50% indigenous. And and they have a whole tradition of circle dances, right? Right. And the uh, and because it's way up north, the powers was really intermittent. They have generators and stuff, but the yeah, power yeah. went out. There were five hundred people wow. in the audience in the you know outdoors in a summer festival, and we you know the band was ready to stop playing. I just kept playing and led them off the stage into this uh, group of people, and everyone started made a giant circle, and we had like 300, 400 people of you know, indigenous, non-indigenous doing a giant circle dance. So yeah. that kind of vibe, right, has always been important to me. That would most likely have been a viral video of yeah, some, yeah, some right? import. If yeah, because and they were like like native drummers doing their hoop start, drumming. They start yeah, they were there and they started with us and like crazy. Yeah, it was totally happening. Great experience. Mm-hmm. Um, later on, I went uh, out into the bush with uh, this woman who had her own sled dog team and and we ate raw caribou and stuff it was really it was a very canadian on that experience. trip or a different that, trip. on that trip wow but uh yeah, it's uh, a very it's a very canadian, canadian. That was a serious canadian <laughs> thing man but um all that to say that at ashkenaz the celebratory and the participatory thing was extremely important so we created from the first year the ashkenaz parade which right. in the first year was just around the harbor front site the second year we started in kensington and the second festival and the third festival and i did three festivals all told uh uh we started in kensington market and created this which is the old jewish market in toronto and we created this whole pageant like a performance thing moving through the streets with giant puppets and a klezmer band with a samba band and you know woven together probably 30 musicians all together and there's an old shul there that's still running even though mostly Jews don't live there anymore. And uh, we did this whole pageant on the steps where the spirit of, uh, I forgot what we called her, the Naya Velt, mm-hmm. the, you know, Naya, the uh, Malacha from Naya Velt, the angel from the Naya Velt, which was the big wings came flying out of the shul over the crowd and people were weeping and it was like an amazing thing. Um, so all, you know, participatory, affirming, open, to other cultures, all the things that people like, right? Yeah. Really, and that we don't give ourselves enough. And so many people would come, over the years still, come up to me and go, that changed my life. Like, that was the first time I felt totally good about being Jewish. Mm. That was the first time I felt happy to be sharing it with everybody else. That was, You know? So, I don't know about you, but for some reason, it seems to me like we Jews have got our share of, like, inherited, like... Uh, baggage for sure I, I don't know why you know what i'm talking just, about right it seems you never heard of anything i said i mean you know people look kind of stressed out but uh i, I just don't know why it's like you know historically it doesn't make any right. sense, i know though. exactly well it's you know completely... a thousand years of getting your butt kicked and never yeah. having true security can be a cause for a therapeutic intervention and sometimes that might be real therapy and sometimes something like this is extremely therapeutic yes um I think the music itself, and then if you put it in a context, and I think it's also really important, a context that is not parochial and not narrow and not about just us mm-hmm. and our thing and nobody else wants our thing. Like, that was the thing that uh, I also got a lot of. People were amazed that non-Jews were streaming to the festival mm. and that, you know, Arbor Fronts is a, a destination. People go there every weekend in the summer. It's not like, it's not like, you know, a bunch of the stuff is free. Yeah. So it's easy. 
it's an easy sell, if you will. Yeah. But we had, it was such a mixed audience. You mentioned that you had an enormous crowd the first year. Yeah. So the first year, there's never, no one knew what this was. They didn't know what it was going to be. We had cumulative total and obviously bums in seats of 30,000 people. That's amazing. Yeah. And the second one was more like 50. Thousand, and the third one was around sixty or something. But let's bring us back to like your personal experience. So you're you're like oh, I'm gonna start a festival. I'm just you know this is what you're you're sort of you're listening to that voice and you're just yeah. sort of going on the thing. What was it like? I mean, it sounded like you probably had to deal with. I mean, I have a little bit of sense of how funding works. I've never put together a festival, especially in a very fancy like <laughs> venue. public yeah. venue, and and. uh you know, you probably, I imagine some of the people who you were talking to about funding would be like, well, who's going to be the audience for this? Right. Who's going to be this and that? And I've definitely had those conversations and have had a hard time explaining, people come, like, yeah. shut up, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I know what I'm talking about, you know? And they're like, well, how do you prove that it's a whole different ball right. game? But, um, but yeah, what was it like for you? I mean, what were you learning? What were the things that you felt like were blowing your mind. I mean, obviously your mind was probably blown several times in the course of this process. It totally was. The I would say this, that um, the first thing was it was a great meeting because Harborfront is this totally, at the time, like I think it's, at the time especially, it was this totally happening cultural center. It had a model mm-hmm. that worked of these weekend festivals in the summer, 10 of them. Everyone was from a wow. different culture. Right, they all had a similar kind of thing. There's the main stage acts, some most of which are free, but then there's some that are ticketed. You know, they just had a way of doing it. So there was, there was an organizational structure. There was organizational structure, oh my God, and so helpful. the reason it worked was I didn't say this part. Why it happened was I didn't just get the idea. I went to Derek Andrews, who was the guy who was the head of music. He did all the booking of the music and the main. Uh, there was other things as well as music, but the main focus of Harborfront was music. Um, in terms of its cultural presentation. And I had done, you know, two or three, maybe four gigs for him over the previous couple of years. Uh, he was clearly into the Bulgars. And we even brought Alan Byrne. He had an accordion festival and he, we brought Alan Byrne and we did like, you know, we had enough budget that we were able to like do some special arrangements for that concert, mm-hmm. which was again, part of our learning to play with Alan and to get kind of that vibe into the music. And uh, it was very successful. It did very well. People liked the concert. So after that, I think, which is like the third or fourth time we'd played there, I said, okay, Derek, that was great. Thank you so much. I really think you should do a Klezmer festival, you know, because you have all these other great festivals and it's really coming on. That's when, this is when I was really starting to feel like it's not just the four or five or six or seven or eight bands that everyone sort of knew about at the time, including the Bulgars coming on. There's all this other stuff happening. And the younger people, you know, we were young then, but even younger people than that are getting into it. And, you know, even the early people coming out of Klez camp or things like that. I said, I think you you should do this. And he was like, you do it. And I was like, okay, ha, ha, ha. And, you know, then I sort of left it. And then I went, but it didn't leave me alone. And I called him. He said, I said, why don't you do this, Derek? Like, you're, you know, you're a great booker. Why don't you just... He's like, no, you do it. We actually have this model where some of our festivals are done with community kind of partners mm. because we just recognize that in that area, they know more than we do, right? We don't have kind of the depth. 
at this point to do as good a job as we want to. And anyway, we like having community partners. Yeah. Uh, he said, so if you can put a group together who wants to do it. So I wrote something up. We went to his boss, very nice woman, but not that broad in her kind of musical understanding because she said, and he was very behind it. So he presented it. I presented it. She was like, well, that sounds really interesting. And I do like Klezmer, I've heard, but I think it all sounds the same. So that allowed, which allowed me to say, yes, so does Baroque music. And actually, so does blues. And so does actually that Canadian, you know, Celtic Canadian music that (laughs) we all love so much. I would say my understanding of that Mm. style of music is at that point. (laughs) Right, exactly. Right. And it's like, and, but I said, you know what, that's okay. Let me go away and think about this. Cause I already had this idea. I think I said to her right then, cause thinking on my feet, I said, well, here's something interesting. I think that one thing we could do is look at doing, yeah, a Jewish festival. Let's look, it's like a pan Eastern European thing that brings in the Roma. Mm-hmm. Cause that's such a important connection anyway. Yeah. And it's implicit in any Jewish festival. It's gotta be sure, but let's make it explicit. Let's like get that balance there. And even the other kind of national folk cultures of the region, which are totally implicated by Jewish and Roman music anyway. Let me come back to you with something about that. And she said, okay, yeah, that sounds good. Why don't you do that? You know, she gave me enough like interest that it was worth my while to go and check it out. So I did. And long story short, I found the sort of most prominent, um, uh, the most prominent community, Eastern European community probably is Ukrainian besides the Jews mm-hmm. uh, in Toronto. Now, unfortunately, and so I reached out to this, somebody, I don't know who, uh, referred this, me to this Canadian, uh, Ukrainian-Canadian theater director who was doing all kinds of cool work in her community. Uh, So I reached out to her. I just want to take a pause. This is still pre-email, right? Pre-email. Yeah, I just want to make that. The entire festival. I just want to make sure that that's explicit. No, 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 just, just like, just like. We used to send each other letters. Yeah, yeah. And pick up the phone. Pick up the phone, yeah, exactly. So, so, uh. That all happened, and um, uh, so I spoke with her, and she was really into the idea, and she said, but, you know, because if we're going to do this, we're both going to have to get our communities involved, and I said, of course, we're going to have to draw on both of them for funding and for, um, obviously, for attendance as well, for the core of our attendance. So she went off, and I was, meanwhile, reaching out to some other people, uh, and she came back and said, I'm really sorry to tell you this, that nobody in the official communities ready to do this. They like the idea. They think it's a good idea, but now's not the time. Mm-hmm. And the reason that now was not the time was that there had just been a royal commission, which is like a congressional inquiry or whatever, into oh. Ukrainian Nazi war criminals in Canada. Oh, Jesus. And unfortunately, there are a lot of them because <laughs> the Canadians, oh, like many other places, were much more interested in letting in, without the, turning a blind eye to these former... Uh, war criminals than they were in letting Jews in. Right. Which, you know, Canada is a famous thing in Canada. Some bureaucrat or high, someone high up in the government at the time when asked, well, how many of these refugees post-Holocaust, right? right? How many of these refugees are we going to take? And his answer was, none is too many. So, uh, and there's a book that was written with that title many oh years later God. about the whole thing. So this was all kind of up. And of course, in any situation like that, not all Ukrainians are Nazi war criminals. In fact, most aren't. In fact, many of them suffered under the Nazis, but there are some, right? So, uh, so the, in general, the Ukrainian community was pissed. Kind of closed ranks. Yeah, they closed ranks, and like you know, you're this is not we're not getting the right the truth about this, and you're you're uh, 
the word? Maligning us. Maligning us. Um, uh, slandering us. Slandering, slandering. Yeah, yeah, Thank yeah. you. And um, so they weren't ready to do it. So that, but the interesting thing was, because that took a little time, and she and I had to, it wasn't just that she went off, we had several conversations, and it became clear to me that, you know, I, that made me start to look around more, and I became clear that it's not just the music, at least on the Jewish end of things, this whole Jewish, klezmer, Yiddish revival was not limited to music. It was happening in theater. There were serious theater artists who were dealing with the same thing, and modern dance, and film and right there was stuff everywhere and because arbor front's a multi-disciplinary venue i was able to go back to them and say okay it ain't gonna happen now politically at least not the ukrainian community maybe some of the other communities we can involve or make it just a gypsy uh, jewish roma thing uh but let me tell you this since my last meeting with you i i can document all this shit that's happening that is amazing and these are very high-level artists uh, um, that's happening across the board. So now I'm pitching you not only on doing a Klezmer weekend festival, I think we can do a week-long festival, uh, you know, elsewhere from Harborfront and leading up to Harborfront, and it can be all the disciplines. That's what I want to do, because it's one thing I do not shrink from a big idea. Doesn't seem like it. <laughs> and I like, you know, making stuff up out of nothing. And they bought it. Mm. You know, and which then, you know, and and you talk about funding. So that goes with a huge amount of support, not direct money. And at the time, they were much flusher probably than they are now. But uh, it meant that they covered all the tech, right? All the tech, all the, like, all of the infrastructure of the actual festival, done. Taken Amazing. care of. It's their people, their sound people, their you know, their uh, kind of venue organizers, their security, their, you know, they had a whole infrastructure around food, which we brought people in as well. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like it's not like doing it from scratch. Yeah. It would be, it would have been more than twice as much work to do it from scratch. You know, it's, but then it meant going out and trying to raise some money, uh, both from arts councils. I can't remember if we got any money from arts councils the first year. I'd be surprised if we did, because mm -hmm. we'd never done it. We definitely did the second and third festivals, but we had to raise some private funds as well. But, you know, immediately then, at the same time, I reached out to a bunch of artists with letters, <laughs> no email, and that's how it got rolling. Yeah. Um, had you done any fundraising before that? Me personally? Yeah. Straight, yeah, we did. We had a kind of, because um, we were trying to figure out how are we going to make a record. Oh, right, yeah, the yeah. The first, the Bulgar record. So you reached out to some people. We did. We did. We had a, we were very good at, we built a really good mailing list, mm -hmm. mailing list. Still important. With, well, yeah, at the time it was Email, with letters and letters, stamps. And yeah. Fucking, I dressed a lot of, you know, <laughs> a lot of envelopes. First rounds by hand, which was insane. And then oh eventually God, got, you know, yeah. was able to print them. And um, that was fundraising. We actually did fairly well at raising money to make the record from our supporters. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that it gave me some sense of it. It wasn't yeah. anything like this, but, it, you know, it gave me some sense of what it means to ask people for money. You know, it wasn't easy. And it was tight, but a lot of the artists were, uh, I'd say, generous because they wanted to see the thing happen, and mm -hmm. we found a way to make it work. And also, I'm trying to remember, but I think Harborfront was able to help us with getting great deals on flights and hotel, like yeah, because of their relationship. So, I mean, it was a little less nuts than it would have been otherwise. 
to try and just do that from scratch. Right. Now, so, for me personally, I would probably enjoy you listing everybody you booked ever at an Ashkenaz festival. <laughs> but I don't think other people necessarily would. So, like, what are some of the most things that you're proudest of getting, bringing to Ashkenaz? Well, I'd say the things I'm most proud of are the commissions. Because that was one thing that was really important. Like, the key things that for me immediately was, one... It's got to have a participatory vibe mm -hmm. so that everybody feels like they are part of creating it. Mm -hmm. Two, we need to be a force to create new work. Uh, because if we're not going to do it, who is? Like, because since we are this larger thing connected to this large cultural institution that has that in a mandate. Plus, like, that's, I felt like that's what this revival needs is, you know, in a way, the people who are doing the careful research and they were already there. And doing it and we could support them by giving them a gig but it felt like creating new work uh out of this rich sort of raw material and its relationship to the rest of the world uh was important mm -hmm. plus i just like to i wanted to be able to commission people whose work i loved that's exciting um, stuff yeah so we was able to do that in theater we we're able to do it in um music so those things like so we we I, and we never well, sometimes yes, but not always did we commission it entirely, meaning we came up with all the money, right. but we were able to be the anchor. Said, we're going to give you this gig, and we're going to give you this much money, which is more than we would just pay like a touring show that's ready, right? So you have, we're going to contribute to the development. And that was true with this piece, Jenny Romaine, Adrian Cooper, Oliver Shalom, and, uh, and uh, uh, Frank London called Glucal of Hamun. Okay, that's how so that, that came was, about. Yeah, that was a Ashkenaz partial commission. In 99, I did a really dense concert that was both were commissions. First was I commissioned Dave Douglas with his Charms of the Night Sky Band to come and play, but within their concert. It wasn't the whole concert that was commissioned, but they wrote a piece that was kind of in homage to Dave Terrace, mm. um, uh, which is on the second Charms of the Night Sky record. Oh, cool. I'll just check that out. Yeah. And on the same concert, which we did, on the same double bill, which we did for two nights or three nights, uh, for both shows, was the Ashkenaz Orchestra Project, which was like a 22-piece band of American and Canadian, maybe one or two European musicians, of course, many of whom were coming to the festival anyway. I mm -hmm. organized that way. And that had five or six new commissioned works. Wow. So that was a big one. Um, in the first festival, I got Frank London and Simon Shaheen together. I think they'd already done something. And this was a, it wasn't really a full commission, but it was kind of. Mm -hmm. And then there were more smaller ones as well. Some, uh, oh, Michael Wex did a show that I think was based on, on Wagner. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so a bunch of things like that. And I would say in terms of artists who I brought that really stood out for me, one was... Masada was John Zorn's Masada because it came to the first festival and we were talking about this before where the way he was the first person to respond from that mail letter. That's his style. Yeah. <laughs> either, either he responds right away or not at all. Yes. And, uh, and uh, he responded right away and he was beautiful. He said, he didn't know me, yeah. right? I'm sure he didn't know about the flying bulgars. Like, but he said, what you're doing is important. It needs to be supported. I'm coming. I have this new band Masada. Like I didn't, know about Masada yet. Yeah, they were, knew, probably, they were probably, they were probably just a couple new. years old. Yeah, know? not even, I think, because uh, I reached out in 94. Yeah, so, so that's, yeah, very new. You know, the first festival was 95, but I must have reached out like a little less than a year earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said, yeah, it was important. 
I'm going to support it. We're going to come. We normally get X uh, amount, and we're going to come for 25% of that plus expenses. Unbelievable. Because this thing has to happen. And you know what's amazing is he actually still does that for the right things he cares about. Yeah. Um, it's not amazing because that's the kind of guy he is. I really, he's a guy who, you know, he's a solid businessman. You know, yes, he, he, will, he will get what's, what he believes is coming to him. And I think he's right when he thinks that's the right thing. But when he supports something... I know a lot of people at his level who can't maintain that level of awareness. You think so? Yeah. I mean, he also just loves musicians. Right. He really is very yeah. good to musicians. I remember yeah. my first record I made was sort of like this free jazz trombone trio thing. And I sent it to him and he just said, sorry, man, I can't put it out, but I love the music. Keep up the great work. Yeah. And he knows how much that means, yeah. I think, yeah. just to do that. And it meant a lot. Of course, <laughs> you know? it, did. You know? of course it did. And, he, and he, I'm sure in your case, it meant even more because I'm sure you had followed his career or whatever. And Well, and it made it easy, much easier to get other people to come. Sure. I mean, I think every, look, it's a gig. And it, we were flying people there and stuff. Yeah, and that's a, serious, even then, a real gig. Even then, you know, now it's even less usual. Yeah. But yeah. even, you know, where they'll go, like, here's your global fee. You get your ass here. Yeah. Right? You know? Uh, so even then, it was not nothing. But, you know, we weren't paying huge money. And um, and people wanted to come. But yeah. it certainly didn't hurt that I could say Masada's coming. All, all right? the, it sounds like all the stars aligned for you. Yeah. At that time. Well, because it was what we were talking about. It was the right thing at the right time. I am, I am good at, like... And it's, I, st- I wouldn't even say, like, oh, I sit above and see everything. I stumble into the wave of what's yeah. happening. Because I'm paying attention to a lot of things. I'm fairly aware of things outside of music as mm-hmm. well. And, um, and I like to bring things together and see the way things intersect. And, you know, kind of just make shit happen. Stir it up. Yeah. Um, that's so, something I can kind of relate to in the sense that if people ask me what my like secret powers are as a musician, <laughs> uh, my I would say the two main ones are always having my horn with me <laughs> and somehow being in the right place yeah. at the right time a lot of the time. Well, that's that's awesome. You know, and it's it, it does make a difference for certain things, especially if you're able, like you, you said you never shy away from a big idea. So that's no, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of hard work. I like hard work, and I like. You know, I like the challenge. Yeah. If somebody says I can't do it or just circumstances say this is not that possible. Right. If it's something I believe in, I'm just going to fucking do it anyway. Six or seven years, 
I've done the thing. I mean, Oscar Nelson was pretty big, but I've done something that was, I bit off something that's even bigger than that, uh, where that involved a vision of creativity and the potential power uh, to be a kind of game changer in how we build our cities. And especially in Toronto. Wow. Because Toronto is the most diverse city in the world. And I've always been about mm. cross-cultural connection. Uh, even within the Jewish work I've done has been about looking at, you know, the areas, the edges of the ecosystem where things uh, come together and connect, which in, in biology, those are the richest areas on the planet. The greatest diversity of life, the greatest richness, the greatest possibility for positive mutations and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I think the same is true in human culture. So, uh, and that's where I hang out. Um, personally, socially, politically, and, uh, and in art. Uh, so, uh, I started an organization called Diasporic Genius, and I've been working in this neighborhood that's the most diverse neighborhood in North America with non-artists using story and creativity as a way to uh, envision like neighborhood transformation and development. And it's only because my resources are not infinite. I mean, I've been doing that for seven years with my very full-time music and project life on mm -hmm. top of it. Uh, now that's going to take a different form where it doesn't involve me and the people around me working as much like just running programs in the community. But it's been extremely large and fascinating and kind of like the next step in a way from the development of Ashkenaz. Mm. Because it is still about, it's not just about the musicians, it's not about the narrow thing of my art and my, which I'm totally into it, but also how does the artist and what we know, how do we bring that to a wider, as a positive force in a wider culture? Because unfortunately the culture seems to not be that friendly in a deep way to like the knowledge and also the risk necessary, right? There's a risk necessary to be in the world of arts that you have to be comfortable with the unknown. And in some ways that's what I was working with in this work. And it's been fascinating, like really, really amazing and a big idea and in some way to me connected to all the rest of it. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like another natural outgrowth of your, you know, looking outward interests. And it's true. I think that you know, that's one of the reasons why I'm doing this is that I think that there's what the, I think you have to be really deliberate about what the arts can do for people now because of, I mean, budget cuts is sort of like a symptom. Well, the thing is fascinating and uh, a great mystery to me. I have ideas about it, but it's very hard to fully understand why. And this is sort of true forever. Like once art became separated and specialized from everyday life where before for the most part in in kind of rooted whether it's indigenous or traditional cultures for the most part uh, artists were people who also did other things and everybody had some form of art in their life and creativity creative expression even if it was just participating in a deeply grounded community festival or something like that but even the specialists also were embedded. So very few of them uh, counted on their art to make a living, which, you know, created a very integrated profile, but also a limited one in some mm -hmm. ways. So, and then when artists got freed up to be specialists and 
to only make their living playing. Uh, it allowed for more artistic development and more exploration and certainly pushed it past the sort of bounds of tradition. But, and it brought something new and important to people, which they know, understand that, but we've never figured out how to resource it in a way that creates sustainability. And I don't know why. Like, I don't, if I look at me or you or the people who were on the bandstand last night or even more senior people or whatever, if we were lawyers or doctors or, you know, professionals of other kinds working at the level that we do of, of excellence, which I think I can say, we would be way more resourced than we are. Right. And so that's just, if I'm not complaining about it and nobody asked me to do this, but I wonder why that is. Yeah. Considering that it's as important to people in many ways as medicine is. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. There's this great story I heard about, um, I think it was something like, uh, it was in one of the world wars and there was this prison camp where there was a lot of British people. And at some point they had a choice they could use, um, like they got a gardening plot and they could use it to either grow food or grow flowers, like an aesthetic. So it was either a functional right. or aesthetic. And they chose the aesthetic. Because, because they didn't have any of it. They didn't have any of it. Uh, and they recognized that that was as important nourishment as food. Plus you can eat flowers. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> Secret. See, that's the thing. Um, I wish you could eat music. But, uh, you know, we're doing okay. No, it's... No, and to be really clear, I'm not complaining no, but about it's... it. But there's it's a fascinating question... Partly because it wouldn't take, I mean, you know, some countries do it. Turkey has a system where once you achieve a certain thing, and you have to kind of continue to do sort of an exam right. every certain amount of time, you get a kind of guaranteed income thing. France is France like, that, is like too, right? that also, yeah. People in Norway seem to have some serious Well, that's for everybody. Uh, yeah, I guess you so. Know, I mean, Canada is, we, we've got a hey, great look, granting right? system. Like, you know, I look at you guys and I'm jealous. Yeah, but even it's, it's almost like, yes, that is, and maybe it just doesn't fit. Uh, you know, there is part of music and culture that fits in a capitalist enterprise, which yeah, is right. popular, which is fine. And that's great. More power to them. Uh, but the areas of it that often are the engines of change, mm -hmm. uh, harder to resource. And, and in a way, maybe it's quixotic, but like I would rather, in some weird way, I'm still the guy who was playing music on the street. And if I was good and people liked what I did, I had money and I ate. And if I sucked, then I didn't. You yeah. know? And I like that. Like I <laughs> like it if you're putting out something that people like, you can eat. Huh. Uh, you know, and, 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 and it's not even about the, it's about how do we resource this stuff so that the new ideas really get a chance to happen, mm -hmm. right? And it, yeah, I don't know. It's a funny one. I go, I'm back and forth because it works. It does work. We're all out here doing it. Yeah. We do it Neither, in spite of yeah. and because of. Yeah. Awesome. 
Well, what's uh, maybe we just wrap up with a couple things you're certainly excited about right now. And I'm sorry that this interview won't get to air before your Stone Week, but yeah, I mean, obviously you've got this week of the Stone. It's pretty exciting. But what's some general stuff that's on? Okay, so I will. I got to say this thing of the Week of the Stone, and we've only done one last night, but one show, the first show. I mean, so extremely happy to be doing it, and you know, grateful to Zorn and to the volunteers there, and just the whole thing, and to all that. I have so much gratitude to that because. There's no other place. I've never had a chance to do this before. Right. Five nights in a row, five different ensembles. And in a way, it's a survey of the different things I'm into. So that's amazing. And I think it actually represents, there's some new, like I'm coming to some new level of capacity to to not just make shit happen, but to express things in a certain way creatively. And I think this reflects that the fact that it's even happening now, as opposed to five years ago or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that, and then my uh, Odessa Havana project, which relates to so many things we spoke about because it is original music coming out of Afro-Cuban and Jewish uh, roots, but it's, it's very much about the specificity of who the composers are, which is myself and Eladio Devan, who's one of the great living Cuban pianists. Mm -hmm. He's up there. Like he's like, I mean, he's in his 60s, but I would call him Chucho Valdez Jr. Like he's, you know, uh, he was a uh, uh, protege of Chucho's mm -hmm. and he's, you know, he's lived in Canada about 20 years. But before that, he was in the center of the Cuban Havana scene. He was uh, Arturo Sandoval's uh, music director for 10 years. Oh, wow. He's done a lot, right? Yeah. And he's a great composer and very awesome individual, a killer player. And that band is really close to my heart. It's, I just, we've been around 12 years, 10, 12 years. And it's only in the last few years, we, it feels like a, a band, like we love each other. The, the music is very uh, integrated. So mm -hmm. that's exciting. Um, we've done a lot more work in the last few years, uh, touring around North America and Brazil. And I'm really working to, we just come up with a third recording, uh, which I'm still trying to license because we just, you know, very lightly released it because I really, I, our first two records were on Sadiq, but that has been scaled back so much. The radical yeah, Jewish culture sure. thing is gone. So that what we were part of. So, you know, I put it out because I had to, but it was time to put it out. But I actually still am looking for a license. So anybody who's got a label that actually... Uh, Probably, if, you know, yeah. God willing, they're listening to this. Right. Uh, and that's, uh, it's just, I can't overstate, uh, I think I can say this objectively, how heavy that band is. Yeah. And the players and the conception and all of it. So it feels like a very mature kind of expression. And I'm excited about that. We just did a concert at Kerner Hall, which I think is one of the most beautiful concert halls in North America. It's like an 1100 seat thing. It's about 10 years old on a double bill with a band that until recently I was, I was the founding artistic director of and the producer of their record. Didn't not part of it. It's called, it was called the new Canadian global music orchestra. And now it's called Kune, which is Esperanto for something, Oh, nice. um, uh, you I know, together that. or something. Yeah, yeah. Canada's global orchestra. And it came out of the Royal Conservatory of Music, which is the, organization behind Kerner Hall and myself and the executive director of that created the thing together and I developed the entire process and I think it's completely unique it is 12 musicians from across the planet that including one indigenous musician from Canada that represents the world but what's happening in Canada which is the creation of new work out of these different cultures coming together yeah and it is if there's something that Canada has to offer the world that's what it is and then, not unrelated, uh, there's a show that I've been creating with some partners, but that is uh, about the seed 
of all of this in Toronto and in Canada, the seat of the cross-cultural uh, vibe is this neighborhood called the Ward, which is fundamentally Toronto's Lower East Side. Mm-hmm. The only difference is, so it's an arrival city, like where all the immigrants stream through, but it's gone. It was wiped out when the new city hall was built in 64 or whenever it was. Mm. Uh, and it was this very dense area with Jews, Blacks, Chinese, and Italians. All over an 80-year period, all squished in together. Great poverty, great um, diversity, great uh, dynamism, as mm-hmm. you can imagine. And very few people know about it because it's gone, right? Right. Uh, unlike the Lower East Side, where you can visit today. But... It is not totally forgotten. People, it's like a touchstone that people have talked about. Very few people know about it. But a few years ago, this uh, group of kind of city building types, our heritage architect and this kind of really cool um, urban affairs journalist, and they edited a book with 50 articles about the war from every aspect. And I was meeting with them about that community group I was talking about, Diasporic Genius. And at the end of it, they handed me this book. This was three years ago that they had just put out. And I looked at it and said, I know about the ward. And I leafed through it and I said, this would make a great opera. And they got all excited because they're those kind of people instead of going, oh, who is this guy? What do you right, mean? yeah, you yeah. Know, That's why is he talking to us about an opera? And uh, so we got together and we, we created, uh, I brought together musicians representing the different cultures. And uh, while we were talking about all the things we could eventually do, like a site-specific festival and, and an opera or a musical or, you know, educational things, I said, let's start with a cabaret that kind of imagines what it sounded like. Mm-hmm. What's the, you know, you're walking down the street and the, the black church's window is open and the shul's window is open and here's some guys in the street and there's gambling going on. Like, what does it sound like? Um, so we made that and now it's coming up in June. We're doing a much more developed version at a major arts festival in Canada, the Luminato Festival. Uh, and we're doing three nights of it there, which will be the most fully realized version of the show and this time I brought in a playwright I wrote the text before but now she's gonna make it much better and we'll have some actors in as well as the musicians and singers uh and that's going up in June so the minute I get home it's I'm I mean I'm producing it with the editors of the book Mm -hmm. the executive producers I'm functionally producing it I'm co-directing the theatrical element of it as well as music directing it so uh, that'll be full-time until that goes up, and then we're going to immediately try and raise the funds to turn it into a musical. Mm. Not turn it into, but take the inspiration of it and write a new musical and yeah. develop a new musical. So that's all going on. And actually, it is the 30th anniversary year of the Flying Bulgars' first gig. So I mentioned before that we did this concert. Mm-hmm. It was beautiful. It was sold out. People loved it. It was really nice to play that music again yeah. and to do the survey, right? I wouldn't call it our greatest hits, but I would say that, you know, the tunes that were most fully realized, Mm -hmm. we were able to represent at least a lot of them. So, you know, obviously the year is already well underway, but I'm going to try and at least book some stuff in the fall, Mm -hmm. even if just locally in Toronto, to to just be able to celebrate further in the year. Wow, that sounds like a nice big plate. Oh, and I want to take the jazz stuff that's represented uh, in this week. And make a record because I haven't made a jazz record since 2005. There so you go. Time. It's no. time. Yep. There Beautiful, we are. David. Thanks so much for doing this. It was fun. What a pleasure. Wow, it's too on the note. So that's my conversation with David Bookbinder, the one, the only. I had a lot of fun talking with David. And I felt like I really learned a lot, and it was great to hear all of his experiences, whether they were growing up 
or how he figured himself out musically and all the stuff that he's up to now. I'm really grateful that David's out there doing what he's doing. From the music that he's making to the way he's thinking about cities and just it's so exciting to see someone who's coming from a musical background and who's using that energy and that creativity to really look broadly about what kind of effects art and music can have in our world. And it seems like David's really engaged in that in a very cool way. So, uh, I don't have much else to say. Uh, I hope and plan to have new episodes come out every two weeks from now for a little while. I would say at least through October because I have a bunch of good conversations lined up and maybe even a little bit farther than that. Who knows? Maybe I'll be able to have enough balance of getting interviews happening to editing them that this can become a more regular thing. And uh, like I said in the intro, uh, I might be in touch with you all about how we can make that happen. I want to make that happen. But it's going to take some finagling. Anyway, that's enough. Just listen to the rest of this track from David's band, Odessa Havana, and enjoy. And good Shabbos. <laughs> 